When it comes to the way you respond in any and every situation that you face in this life, when you boil it all down, you really only have two choices. It's that simple. Choice number one, respond like Noah when he gets off the ark. Choice number two, to not respond like Noah. I mean, that sounds so simple, but it's the truth. These are the two choices that you and I have as God's people, to respond like Noah or to not respond like Noah. And the choice that you make, or the way you respond, speaks volumes about what your heart clings to most in this life. Now, when Noah was alive, when Noah was living in this world, when the Lord God looked out and saw what he saw in the world, you remember what he saw? He saw how wicked mankind had become. He saw how every inclination of the thoughts of their heart was only evil all the time. And do you know how the Lord felt? He was grieved. He was grieved that he had ever made mankind and he had pain in his heart. But there was one family, and specifically one man that Moses tells us about that was, or that stood as far as righteousness was concerned, head and shoulders above the rest. His name was Noah. Noah was a man who was not just upright and blameless compared to the rest of the evil generation, but he was a man who walked with God. And so God chose the one who walked with him for a special purpose. He said to Noah, I'm going to send a flood that is going to destroy everything. Everything that lives and moves and has its being, everything that has being because of me, I am going to destroy with this flood, except for eight people. Here's what I want you to do, Noah. I want you to take your sons and your sons' wives and your wife and yourself, and I want you to go into an ark that you're going to build. And I'm also going to send to you two of every living creature, and I'm going to put them on the ark, and I'm going to establish my covenant with you, and I'm going to keep you alive. This is my promise to you. So Noah did as the Lord commanded. He built an ark of cypress wood to the exact specifications, and by the Lord's command, Noah and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives and all of these animals, they get into the ark, and the Lord shuts it up. And that's when the world turns upside down. The great uh, springs of the deep burst forth. The heavens open up and rain falls on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. And in that great deluge, everything that lived and moved and had its being, everything that the Lord created at the beginning, its life was taken from it. All except Noah and his family and the two of every living creature. Now that had to be a fearful, terrifying experience. To be on that ark and with every gust, with every, with every gust and with every wave that rolls up the side of that ark, they had to be wondering, is today the day that we face that same fate? And are we going to die just like the rest of the creatures and humanity has died? And yet for every moment that they had that was filled with fear, that covenant that God made to Noah, it rung in his ears and echoed in his heart. I will keep you alive. That's my promise to you. You know how long Noah and his family and those creatures spent on the ark? Significantly longer than 40 days and 40 nights. It was a year and 10 days that those men and women and those creatures stood on there. 375 days until God finally showed Noah that he was going to make good on his promise. The floodwaters recede. God opens up the ark and commands Noah. The same way he commanded him to go in, he says, go out. You and your family and all of these creatures so that they can increase and be, and be fruitful and multiply and, and take possession of the earth, right? Go out. And what is the first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark? He doesn't do what 
what people did last week after Hurricane Ian hit. He doesn't do a damage assessment. He doesn't doesn't send search and rescue because in this case it would be absolutely fruitless. He he doesn't try to come up with a death toll, which would be an impossibility. Instead, God tells us what Noah did. He built an altar. And he took the clean animals that God commanded him to take in the first place, and he sacrificed them as a burnt offering to the Lord. In other words, what Noah does is he worships God. It's the first thing he does. Worships God. And there's significance in the offering that, uh, that Noah gives. If you fast forward a few books in the Old Testament to a book called Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 1, it deals with burnt offerings and tells you exactly what it is. Not only is a burnt offering an offering that someone gives, which expresses a covenant relationship, right? God cut a covenant with Noah. So that this blood offering not only expresses a covenant relationship with God and the sacrificer, but it is the only burnt offering that is fully consumed by the fire and fully dedicated to God. Every other sacrifice would be eaten in part by the priests and the Levites who offered that sacrifice on behalf of the person who brought it. But this one, the burnt offering, fully and totally dedicated to God through the fire. So what Noah and his family were saying when they offered this offering and worshiped the Lord, what they were saying is, Lord, you are our God. We are your people. And we dedicate ourselves fully and gratefully and thankfully and freely to you. This is how Noah responds. So is this how you would respond? Maybe better is, is this today? Is this how you respond? Is your first response in any and every situation, whether it is in the good moments or or the most terrifying and worst moments you have ever experienced, is your first response and reaction to build an altar? Is your first response and reaction to, to worship God for all he is and for all he does and for all he has given you? But the sanctified part of our hearts says, absolutely, that's the way we respond. That's the way we will always respond. But if you take a look at like an honest look at your heart. I think our hearts all, all of us, me included, tell a very different story about times where we, where we don't do that, where our first reaction is not to, to worship God for, out of gratefulness and thankfulness for all he's done. Do you know why this was Noah's first reaction? Have you ever stopped to, to think about that? Because it, it does strike you as a little odd, right? They step out of the ark, and that's the first thing he does. I think you and I would want to look around and gawk at, at what has gone on over the last year and 10 days. The reason that Noah and his family, the first thing that they do is worship is because that whole time in the ark, the thing that they clung to was that promise that God made them. I will establish my covenant with you and I will keep you alive. Right, And it's only from a heart that tightly clings to the promises of God that flows the kind of Noah-like response, that kind of grateful and thank-filled worship, right? And this is the kind of praise and response that God wants in each of our lives in any and every situation. And so the only way for you and I to to have a Noah-like response like that is for our hearts to cling tightly to, to not just one promise, but all of the promises that our God has made us. You know, do you have any idea how many promises God makes in the Bible to you? You have any idea? Over 8,800. From front to back, 8,800. Now, sure, some of those 
Promises are repetitions or variations of that same promise because it turns out sinful human beings don't like to listen to the first time. So they need to be told things over and over and over again, right? But the fact still stands from those 66 books from front to back, 8,800 promises, more than that. Your God makes you. And these are the promises that your God gives to you as, to be your anchor and to be your hope and to be your comfort in every situation. Right? And it's in clinging to all of these promises, more than 8,800 of them, that produces this kind of Noah-like worship. So, it, so in your life, if you evaluate your life and your heart and you aren't offering this Noah-like response, that is coming as a direct result of you not clinging as tightly as you should to all of the promises that your God makes you. And one of the reasons I think that we as, as modern Christians who live in America struggle with this, one of the reasons we don't cling as tightly to the promises of God as we should, is because oftentimes we don't think we need to. Right, let, me, let me clarify that a little bit. Over the last couple of weeks, and I said this in the introduction to our sermon, over the last couple of weeks we've been talking about how much God has blessed us, right? Materially, financially, with family. I mean, in, in every aspect, God has so blessed us out of our gourd that we can't even fathom the ways in which he's blessed us. And so one of the blessings that we have is, is that we don't have to live in a, in a crucible like Noah, right? We live in a country where things are pretty good, right? I mean, you could argue with me, I suppose, but relatively speaking, things are pretty good. We can operate in relative religious freedom. We can, we have money, we have possessions, right? We're not in a crucible like Noah. And God also promises we'll never have to experience something like Noah and his family experience. I mean, after Noah offered that sacrifice to the Lord, it was, it was an aroma that was so pleasing to the Lord that he said, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though, even though every inclination of their hearts is evil from childhood, I will never again dis destroy the world like I did. I will never destroy all of human life the way I did, right? So God, that's another promise. That God says, you never have to go through the thing that Noah did. And so when we live in this kind of life of, of comfort and ease, relatively speaking, and you're not put in that kind of a crucible, it can make you think, well, why do I need these promises if I've kind of got everything I need? If I'm just set. And even though we do live lives of comfort, there are plenty of times where, where we do get put through the ringer. Right? And maybe it's not often, maybe it's, it happens every once in a great while, but there are times when life just sucks, when life is really hard. And in those moments, where do you turn and what is it that your heart is clinging to? Is your heart clinging tightly to the promises of God? Or is your heart clinging to someone or something else? And by extension, that means if your heart is clinging to someone or something else, that, that you have loosened your grip, loosened your grip on all of those promises that your God has made you. Now, I don't have a breakdown of all of those 8,800 promises that God makes, but I know these two truths based on Scripture. That God blesses us typically in two realms. He blesses us temporally and makes us promises temporally. And he makes us promises about the future. So the way I typically speak about this is he gives us promises about the now and about the not yet. And so these temporal promises are promises that deal with our earthly lives, about God's care and protection and provision that these blessings that, that we can physically see and touch, right? But God also makes us uh, a ton of promises. I mean, un un unimaginable promises about the future that is to come, about the new heavens and the new earth and perfection and eternal life and a life with God that, that will never end, right? So these promises, they, are, they have the same reality 
for us as temporal promises do. They're just not yet. Right? We just can't see them yet. So here's what typically happens to, to us as sinful human beings. Here's one of the main reasons why we tend to, to loosen our grip on the promises that our God has made us. We look at these temporal promises that God makes. And when they aren't fulfilled in the way that we think God should have fulfilled them or not fulfilled in the timetable that God, we think God should have fulfilled them, we tend to loosen our grip on them a little bit. Our confidence tends to be shaken in them a little bit. That's not to say you don't believe them, but having your confidence shaken or loosening your, loosening your grip on those promises is a very short walk to disbelief, okay? It's very short. So when your confidence is shaken, you loosen your grip on these temporal promises, do you know what else tends to get shaken? Your confidence in the promises about the, the not yet. All of the promises that your God makes you about the future. And if you at all loosen your grip on any of the promises of God, both about the now and the not yet, what tendency does the human heart typically have? To latch on to something else to fill the void. Be it a human being, be it something material, even a substance. And when you aren't, when your heart is not clinging to those promises of God as tightly as they should, then do you know what else you're not producing? A Noah-like response to all of his generosity. A response that worships God in any and every situation. Seven, think for a moment, why? Why did Noah and his family, while they were on the ark, rolling in the waves of that great deluge, why did they cling to those promises as tightly as they did? Because it was literally the only thing that they had. Apart from those promises, there was no life. There was no hope. There was no survival. But for every moment of fear that they had, those promises offered them something that nothing else could. It did give them hope. It did give them comfort. They knew, because God promised them this, that the very waters that were taking life from everything else were going to be the very waters that actually gave them life. This is why they clung to those promises so tightly. Because for them, it was a matter of life and death. It was literally the only thing that they had. And so from this account in the flood and from Noah, we, God teaches us a very valuable lesson about our own walk with God. Because God has created you, like Noah, to be a people. To be people who walk with God. To be a people who are righteous and upright and blameless. This is the lesson that God would have you take away today. That in any and every situation, you need to cling to all of the promises your God makes you as if they are the only thing that you have. Because the reality is, they are. They, they truly are the only thing that you have. Anything else that you have in this life, any of the blessings that you have, and, and we all have to admit, we are blessed, like beyond measure, out of our gourds blessed. But all of those blessings that God pours out to you in this life, they're all temporal which means that they are one day going to disappear and no longer be there, which means those things can't save you from a terrible situation. Even the human beings that we tend to cling to probably sometimes a little too tightly and rely on them as if they are God, as if they can act like the promises God makes, those things like you and me are sinful and they're going to die one day, just like you and me. Literally everything that, that Satan, whose name means deceiver, tricker, right? He wants to trick you. Anything that Satan would have you cling to other than the promises of God are literally filled with the stench of death. 
Truly, they are. They're all going to disappear. So the only thing that you and I have to rely on in this life with with any certainty, and, and I can say by faith, with absolute certainty, the only things that we have to rely on are those promises because the God who makes you those promises, he is a God of awesome power. He is a God of unimaginable anger over sin and also magnificent mercy to people who don't deserve it. And you see all of this demonstrated in the flood. Right? The God who makes you every single one of those more than 8,800 promises for you to cling to, to be your anchor in hope, he is the God who is called truth and life. And he cannot tell a lie and he cannot take back something that he has said and he will always fulfill the promises that he makes to you and me. And if you want proof of this, if you want proof that you can look at and that you can cling to, to know that these promises are reliable, well, God shows it to us in, in Genesis chapter 8. Open up your service folders. To It would be on page 5. Page 5 in your service folders. Looking at, at Genesis chapter 8, I want to read verses 21 and 22 to you and then, and then talk about this proof that God shows us. In verse 21, this is after Noah has, has offered up his sacrifice the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of their heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Do you want proof that God's promises to you are reliable? The fact that we're here. The very fact that you and I are living today is proof of this. Since the time of that first great ancient flood, God has never once again destroyed the world like he did. You want proof that God's promises are reliable? What season did we just enter here in North Carolina? The beautiful fall, right? The reason that we all live in North Carolina for this beautiful fall weather, right? Every year since the flood, the seasons have continued, summer and winter, cold and heat, you want, you want proof that God's promises are reliable? Day and night have never ceased. And they will continue in sync to go, light and dark, until the earth, as long as the earth endures, until Jesus comes back in judgment. Right, but there's more than just this, because all of those promises deal with our earthly lives, right? It's all temporal things, seed time and harvest, cold and, cold and heat, day and night. And if God is willing to give to you proof and keep those promises to you, how much more is he going to be willing to keep the promises about the not yet? The promises about your future? And you can find that answer by examining the flood more broadly. What did God accomplish by carrying out the flood? By wiping wickedness and evil off the face of the earth. So in essence, what God did was he recreated the world he created in the first place. So when Noah and his family stepped off the ark, they were stepping, they were stepping into a new world that was a gift to them, a, a world that they were to inhabit. But interestingly enough, the one thing that God did not create through the flood was what? The human heart. The human heart. Noah and his family's hearts were just as sinful as the day they, when they stepped off the ark as the day they stepped on it. And the reason that God didn't recreate the ark or recreate the human heart, well, the answer to that lies in a promise. And it's a promise that far precedes the, the great flood. It's a promise that was made to the first fallen creatures in this world. It was the promise of a savior. And it was a promise that our God intended to keep. The promise of one who would come into this world 
to be a true and better sacrifice than any sacrifice ever altered by no, offered by Noah or any Israelite on an altar. God promised to send his son in time, right? You can look back at history and see that God kept this promise. He promised to send his son in time when the time had fully come. He sent Jesus to step into the muck and mire of humanity and drowned in the sea of our sin. To be offered up, not on the altar of the tabernacle or the temple, but on the altar of the cross. And because of all of that work that Jesus has done for you, Your God now looks at you, a people just as sinful in Noah, and says, I will forgive your wickedness, and I will remember your sins no more. The very reason that God destroyed the world in the first place in this flood, God says, I've taken that all away from you. You're forgiven. God says to you, as far as the east is from the west, so far of your transgressions, your sins be removed from you. The whole world in every direction was covered with water, but God says in a beautiful way, in two distances that don't touch. That's how far removed your sin is from you. And the reason that is, is because I kept my promise to you. That I poured out the deluge of your death and your hell on my son so that you never have to face it. And God be praised for that. That he kept this promise and God continues to keep this promise. And day after day, he continues to work through this promise by creating faith in the hearts of people like you and me who cling fervently and wholeheartedly to these things. And the way that God, the way that he works this faith in your heart is something that the the flood symbolizes. Your baptism. God may not have recreated the human heart in the flood of the baptism, but God, God says that flood points to a true and better water that actually does recreate a heart. Because in your baptisms, God drowns you in the flood of that water that's connected with his word. He drowns that wicked and vile, sinful nature in your heart. And he creates in you a new creature who, like Noah, is righteous and blameless and upright. Who, like Noah, walks with God. Who believes all of the promises that your God has made you. It's hard to count and fathom the amount of promises that our God has made. Right? 8,800, that's a lot of promises. And we've talked about what? Four of them, maybe. God wants us not just to cling to four. He wants us to cling to every other one and cling to them fervently because it's only in clinging to these promises that you have a response like Noah. A response that first and foremost in any and every situation, whether good or bad, responds to God out of gratefulness and thanksgiving for all he has done for you, one who worships him with your whole heart, one that says to God, Lord, you are our God. We are your people. And we dedicate ourselves fully and freely and gratefully and thankfully to you. God, may that joy and that desire always be found in the hearts of your people here. Amen.